Welcome to the MLB Trade Rumors Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of the MLB Trade Rumors Podcast. My name is Dara McDonald and I can assure you that my relationship with Taylor Swift will not impact the quality of this show. We are going to talk about the happenings in the baseball offseason on, uh, it is January 31st, or no, excuse me, January 30th, as we are recording this podcast, uh, Tuesday, January 30th, just about two weeks until pitchers and catchers report to spring training, but there's still so much going on because it has been a crazy slow offseason that things are getting done at the last minute, signings, trades, all kinds of stuff. And here to talk about it all with me is my colleague, Anthony Franco. How's it going, Anthony? I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing pretty good, thanks. Like I said, lots of stuff going on for the time of year because the, the way this offseason has played out, things have been kind of pushed uh, into the new year. And even now, as it's almost February, spring training just over the horizon, we still have stuff happening, including a trade. Maybe even you could call it a baseball trade happened last night. Uh, the Mariners and Twins lined up on a deal. Jorge Polanco going to Seattle in exchange for four players, two of which are MLB level. You got uh, Justin Topa and Anthony Desclafani, as well as a couple of prospects. Uh, how would you characterize this deal, Anthony? Yeah, I thought it was a really interesting one. Um, it sort of kind of straddled the line between baseball trade and future value. Um, Minnesota had talked about how they wouldn't trade from their infield surplus if they didn't get MLB help. And they did. Um, Justin Topa is a good reliever. He's had a, you know, some injury history, a couple Tommy John surgeries, and so there's risk with him. But he's cheap and could be controllable for a couple of years. And he's at the very least looks like a middle reliever when healthy. Probably a little bit better than that, like a setup type. Disclafani could compete for the number five starter job. Um, I don't know that either of those guys would be necessarily the headliner. I think Gabriel Gonzalez, the outfield prospect they got, is probably the most valuable part of the return, but. It felt like kind of an interesting sort of quantity package for them. And then for Seattle, just clearly needed infield help uh, for most of the offseason. And Polanco is probably the best second baseman who'll get traded. So I liked it well enough for both teams. I thought maybe it was a little more than I thought Minnesota would have gotten for Polanco. But I understand why Seattle did it. Do you have any scathing takes for either side? Um, I don't have scathing takes, no. I mean, my first blush was that Minnesota did well. Uh, Polanco's a good player, and uh, his contract is affordable. And so even to have gotten, you know, a passable starter and a reliever would have been a solid return. But it seems like this is kind of a thing that they have set as a target in trades. You know, like when we saw they traded... Uh, Luis Arise to the Marlins. They got back Pablo Lopez, but they also got a couple of prospects in the deal. And so it seems like this is sort of how they operate is that they want to get a mixture of both major league talent and future talent to sort of um, be playing for the present and the future at the same time. Um, so yeah, so they have these budgetary concerns because of their TV deal, which is something that we talked about extensively in last week's episode. So they're operating on a limited budget. But um, yeah, they did uh, have this infield surplus. So Polanco was sort of, I don't know if I would say expendable, but it's like, you know, you could subtract him and the infield picture still looks good for them. So does the does the infield picture look good to them now without Polanco in it for Minnesota? Yeah, I mean, I think 
It relies on Edward Julian being at least a, a tolerable second baseman. Uh, he's probably below average, but they clearly think that he can handle himself there a little bit, um, which makes sense. You know, I, he's a good young hitter, and I understand that they don't want to pigeonhole him at DH or first base already. Um, but clearly, it seems like that's he's going to be the guy who takes over at second base. Obviously, they have Correa at shortstop. And uh, Royce Lewis was awesome in the second half into the playoffs. He's going to be the third baseman so long as he's healthy. Um, you know, maybe they could look for a veteran bat at first base just because Alex Kirilov has a kind of lengthy injury history. But there's still a lot of depth. They have a former top 10 pick in Brooks Lee who should reach the majors at some point next year. Kyle Farmer is still around as a quality utility option. Willie Castro on there is like infield depth too. So I still like the infield mix in Minnesota quite a bit. Um, they were definitely in a much better spot there than the Mariners were until last night. So makes sense that uh, Seattle and Minnesota lined up on this kind of thing. And uh, for Seattle, you know, they've talked about reducing their swing and miss uh, this offseason. They traded or let uh, depart guys like uh, Eugenio Suarez and Teoscar Hernandez and Jared Kelnick, who all you know, struck out in more than 30% of their plate appearances uh, last year. And so they've essentially replaced those three with uh, Mitch Hanniger and Luke Rayleigh and uh, Polanco. Now, Polanco's strikeout rate ticked up to 25.7% in the most recent season, but overall he's less of a strikeout concern uh, in his career compared to those other guys. 18.2% is his career rate. But uh, ultimately, I mean... Seattle has had a hole at second base for a long time, so it's a nice fit for them uh, this year, and maybe even next year, because there's another club option there. Uh, oh, and I forgot to mention Mitch Garver as well, to uh, you know, another uh, addition to that lineup. So a lot of uh, swapping things in and out. What uh, I mean, are the Mariners better than last year? Have they sort of uh, made a lot of lateral moves? How do you feel about that uh, series of transactions I just uh, uh, spoke about? Yeah, I, I think lateral is probably about where I would put it. I, I don't they like revamped half the lineup, um, but I don't know that it's dramatically better. I mean, they they shipped out the Oscar and Suarez, you know, I mean, Garver, I like a lot uh, to step in at DH and Polanco is a good player. So it's not, you know, I'm not down on anything that they did. But then also, you know, to get Hanniger and to get Disclafani, they flipped for Polanco. They traded away Robbie Ray, who could have made an impact in the second half. So they did deal a little bit from their starting pitching depth. You know, I, I like the team. Um, I don't love what they did this offseason. I think a lot of what Depoto said about adding contact hitters, you know, they sort of did, I guess, with Luis Arias a little bit, but and Polanco, like you mentioned, but it didn't feel like they didn't go in that direction as as hard as I expected to, given that Depoto called it a priority at the the start of the winter. Like I Miami said something like that last year, and then they went out and got Luis Arias and like this is the Mariners kind of broadcast a similar message and then didn't really follow through to the extent that the Marlins did. Right. Well, it seems in both case, both of these clubs, uh, perhaps they still have moves left, both clubs dealing with financial concerns and sort of in the twins case, actually a budget decrease. And in the Mariners case, just sort of, uh, I think hovering around a similar level. And so in both cases, it seems like there's been this, uh, need to move pieces around without necessarily making huge upgrades because uh, the resources are limited. Um, but uh, it seems like the twins, uh, you know, they save some money on this deal and are going to 
do something with that. So there's still time for them to uh, continue making moves with the remainder of the offseason. Um, but an interesting deal. We love baseball trades, you know, so much more interesting than when it's just prospects on one side of the deal. But so much other stuff happened. Uh, like I said, lots of moves happening because uh, of the slow offseason and stuff is still going on. So let's talk about Reese Hoskins. This is a pretty big deal, uh, especially considering the club. He signed with the Brewers on a two-year deal uh, with an opt-out, which was sort of what was expected given his circumstances. Uh, $34 million guarantee for Hoskins uh, from the Brewers. What did you make of this one, Anthony? This off is about right. I think we projected two for 36, something like that, with the opt-out. So we were right there on on price point. This is about what we expect him to get. Um, Milwaukee, I guess you could say it was a little bit surprising just because this isn't typically what they do in free agency, but they needed offensive help. It's a short-term deal, potentially just one year if Hoskins plays the way that clearly he and the team expect him to, then he could opt out next winter. And they did have some room before last year's payroll, largely because of the Woodruff injury that led to him being non-tendered. And so a lot of that salary was kind of reallocated to Hoskins. Hoskins made a little more than Woodruff would have, but not dramatically so. Um, they needed first base help. They needed offense generally. And I I don't really have any concerns about Hoskins bouncing back from the ACL. His game was never built around athleticism or anything like that anyways. So. I expect him to be an above-average hitter like he's been throughout his career in Philadelphia, and I think it's a, a good move for Milwaukee. Yeah, it's interesting the way it's played out for the Brewers. Uh, obviously, they've been a strong team. They just won the Central uh, last year. And, you know, for a long time, it seemed like there was this ticking clock around their roster because of uh, Woodruff and Burns and Adamus all reaching uh, eight-figure contracts uh, this year at the same time and nearing free agency at the same time. And it seemed like some sort of significant roster retool was maybe going to happen. But then the injury to Woodruff just sort of made that retool almost sort of simple where they just cut him and, uh, you know, reallocated some of that payroll to an upgrade to their lineup. So, you know, they're actually uh, looks like they're going into 2024 with a pretty similar roster to what they had last year. Um the central is very interesting. Would you say the Brewers are a favorite to repeat, or what do you think? I think they have a shot, but I, I wouldn't call anyone in there the favorite. I, like to me, I think you could make a reasonable argument for maybe anyone except for Pittsburgh um, that I would buy is like this is the best team in the NL Central. I maybe lean a little bit more towards the Reds at this point, but. I would take the field over any individual team. I just Milwaukee, you know, they've been the best team in the central for the past couple of years, but they've never been great. And the offense should be better than it was, but it's a little top heavy still. You know, I, I mean, they have a talented young outfield and maybe Jackson Churio comes up and, and immediately is a superstar and that kind of transforms everything. But right now, this still looks like an average ish lineup to me. And then obviously losing Woodruff hurts the rotation, the back of the rotation is not as deep as we typically expect for the Brewers. Um, and so I just, I, I like the team. I don't love the team. And I think that, you know, the Cubs, the Reds, and maybe even the Cardinals, although it's a little, that's a little more of a stretch, are kind of right there with Milwaukee. 
Yeah, I think the division is far more interesting than it was last year where it was, you know, Milwaukee and no one else was really close. But yeah, I think you're right that it's it has bunched up significantly, at least uh, it appears that way in the offseason. Um, so let's move on. The, the market for uh, bats has seemingly picked up a lot of steam. We just uh, talked about Hoskins and another one. That signed uh, in the past week, Jock Peterson went to the Diamondbacks one year, twelve point five million. How about this one, Anthony? Um, so I guess we can lump that into with today's move, where the Blue Jays just signed Justin Turner. Uh, I think it's yeah, that just came out like report. like an hour ago uh, as yeah. of this recording. So in that sense, I mean, Jock at twelve and a half. Like if if you had told me I could choose between Jock or Justin Turner at the same price point, I would take Turner pretty easily. Um, you know, so I mean, who knows? Maybe Turner preferred to go to Toronto and didn't want to go to Arizona. It's never quite that simple. But the twelve and a half for me is, seems a little rich given what we've seen for some of the other DH types. And Jock's just coming off a not a great year. Uh, still hits the ball hard, and Arizona wanted a. You know, they've added a couple of right-handed bats that could mix in a left-handed hitter this time around, and they wanted a DH. But to me, like I, I prefer the Turner price point over the Jock price point. No. Um, what is so? What is it? Uh, Peterson's like platoon uh, issues because he's poor against lefties. Is it the defense? Like, what is it? Uh, I mean, because he's like eight years younger than Turner. So uh, why do you? Why would you prefer Turner at the similar price point? Yeah, I just think, well, Turner's a more well-rounded hitter to begin with, like you mentioned. I mean, he's you don't have to platoon Turner. I know Turner was better against lefties last year, but has generally been neutral or even better against right-handed pitching despite being a right-handed hitter. And yeah, I mean, Turner could factor in it at third base or at first base. And, you know, so like Arizona could have mixed him in at third if Suarez struggles or, you know, if Christian Walker gets hurt. Whereas with Jock, it's, it's just kind of like, yeah, he's probably strictly DH. He can play left field a little bit, but he's not good out there. Um, so I just think Turner is a more and overall a better player. Um, would you do you disagree with that or are you just all in on Jock because he mashes right handed pitching? Well, the mashing is intriguing. I think uh, I mean, I'm in Toronto. And so, uh, you know, I think that there has been uh, some desire in the Toronto fan base for a left handed hitter because they don't have a ton of that or like the lefties they do have are kind of bottom of the order guys like uh, Dalton Varsho and Kevin Kiermeyer and Kevin Biggio. And so a uh, middle of the order left-handed hitter was uh, seemingly a better fit for the roster. And so Peterson could have been that Turner hits right-handed and he doesn't fit into that, uh, you know, desire, but you're right that the defense uh, is a little bit interesting, you know, because the Jays have also been connected to guys like J.D. Martinez and Jorge Soler, who are similar to Peterson, more DH types. But because they went for Turner, it seems like they were attracted to, similar to Brandon Belt, that he could play a little bit of infield. But I guess the question is how much. I mean, uh, Turner's uh, 39 now, um, and the Jays don't really have a third baseman. But... Um, yeah, so how much, I guess, how you would feel about it might uh, depend on how much you think they can run Turner out there to play, thir- you know, he's played third, first, and second even a little bit with uh, the Red Sox last year. What do you think, where should we set the over-under on games in the field for Turner, like 50? Yeah, I was going to say 50 seems about right between the two corner infield spots and maybe an occasional trip to second base. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think that... Like, would this rule you out on Matt Chapman if you're Toronto then? Or do you think that Turner could just be a full-time DH and they still have 
both money and the third base reps available to still go after Chapman because they've been kind of linked to him, but not. There's no no indication that they're like the favorite to bring him back or anything like that. I don't think you can take it completely off the table because, you know, the Jays last year had Chapman at third and then Brandon Belt as their DH slash occasional first base, uh, you know, giving Vladdy a breather here and there. And so Chapman and Turner could do that uh, this year. What I wonder, I mean, this is a big picture question that I don't know the answer to because it's entirely possible that the Jays are just sort of, um, you know, doing a negotiating tactic now waiting and uh seeing if anybody uh anybody's price drops uh now that spring training is getting closer but it is starting to feel if that move doesn't materialize that after they missed out on otani and some of their other big targets that it seems like they're sort of not uh committing any significant future dollars to sort of see how things go in the 2024 season because they have a lot of guys on the roster who are either impending free agents or free agents after 2025. And they also have a lot of prospects who are sort of near the major league level, but are still, you know, still have question marks. You know, there's uh, Ricky Tiedemann, who seems like a great pitcher, but uh, hasn't built up his innings yet. And, you know, they just added Yariel Rodriguez, who's kind of an unknown after not really pitching in 2023. And then they have prospects like Aurelvis Martinez and Addison Barger uh, who have reached AAA but you know haven't uh, cracked the big leagues just yet and it's sort of unclear if they're going to be you know everyday guys or sort of second division regulars and you know David Schneider was up last year and had a good uh, debut for a couple weeks but then crashed back down to earth and so they have a lot of these unanswered questions they haven't extended Bo Bichette or Vladimir Guerrero Jr. who are both for agents after 2025 so I wonder if in the big picture if they don't want to do a big deal for somebody like Chapman or Bellinger take the 2024 season to see how things go does this core you know you could argue that, uh, you know, they struggled on offense in 2023. And so was that just uh, an aberration? And, you know, if like Vladdy and Springer and Alejandro Kirk and some of these other guys bounce back offensively that, you know, without external additions, they could just be better just because of regression. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if that's like a wise strategy, but, you know, that's an argument that somebody could make. And so it seems like they're sort of taking this like wait and see thing where they will see how things go in 2024, but they haven't, they actually don't really have a ton on the long-term books apart from Barrios. So like, you know, a significant pivot could happen uh, this year uh, if things don't go well, or if things do go well, they can make a, di a different big splash next year if they aren't particularly enthused with making a commitment to Bellinger or Chapman right now. Um, yeah, so I don't know. Uh, <laughs> that was a long-winded way of me saying that like, I don't really know if the Jays still have the appetite for that big move, but like they still could do it with Chapman, like I mentioned uh, like 17 minutes ago. Yeah, that'll make sense. I mean, it's, I um, do think that the offense should probably just bounce back. Um, you know, just, I would expect Vladdy, like you mentioned, to be better than he was last year, uh, which would go a long way towards just improving the lineup. But it does kind of make sense to say, hey, look, we're going to take a look, see where this team's headed. And, you know, now that we're not going to get a, a top tier target, evaluate at the deadline, see how close we are. You know, obviously it's always a tough division and kind of see whether this is a long term core here in a way that is maybe a little more questionable than it was i guess a year or two ago yeah it's it's an interesting pivot point um you know um 
like uh, for all the reasons I mentioned. And also, I mean, hypothetically, I mean, you have to I think you have to consider best case and worst case scenarios when you're running a team. If some sort of worst case scenario happens where uh, things go very, very poorly in 2024, they could also, you know, reset their luxury tax status, you know, trade some pieces at the deadline and try to reload for 2025 uh, or beyond. But uh, also, you know, in addition to the, the like, if Vladdy bounces back, if Kirk bounces back, if Alec Manoa is like even somewhat back, if uh, he's, you know, gets his ERA down to the mid fours or something like that, and he's your number five starter, then, you know, it could be, it could be a great team with just like a bit of a regression, even if they don't have the splashy Yotani move. All right, so let's go uh, – let me put it to you, Anthony. We got like eight more deals here that are on my list. Which of these do you find the most interesting here? Because <laughs> we got Joey Gallo. We got James Paxton, Colt Keith extension, Matt Moore, uh, Ottavino, Neris, and uh, David Robertson, and Aaron Hicks, and Alex Wood, and Adam Frazier. Do you have any preference? We got a lot to choose from. Uh, yeah, let's talk about Colt Keith. Cole Keith, this is an interesting deal. Uh, we're seeing more that he has not yet made it to the majors, but he signed a six-year extension with three options, guarantee just under twenty-nine million dollars. So, what do you what do you think about this? I love it for Detroit. Um, you know, I think in general, I, I'm always going to be a fan of investing in your top young players, uh, just because the upside is is so big with these kind of extensions, like. I know that sometimes the guy turns out to be Scott Kingery and it's just a complete whiff. But if you hit on this kind of prospect and you get, you know, obviously the Ronald Acuna one is like the gold standard, but it doesn't even have to be that big. Like you could get a Luis Robert deal or something like that, where you just get a four or five win player for well below market value and you extend them at a couple of years of team control. And then this guy becomes... Even if the rebuild doesn't accelerate, which I, I do like where the Tigers are headed. So I do think that Keith will be a, a good player on a, a contending team for a while. But even if that kind of stalls out like it has the White Sox, then you look and you just have like an elite trade piece as well. Um, but obviously, that's not the plan right now. Uh, Detroit's envisioning Keith being a middle of the lineup anchor for them. And I think he will be like his offensive numbers in the minors are, are crazy good. Now, part of the reason he's not an elite, elite prospect and more just a very high end guy, but not like a top five prospect in baseball is because he's not a great defender. It doesn't seem anywhere. And they're going to try to play him at second base after he came up as a third baseman. And we'll see where he fits defensively. But I have a lot of faith in the guy to hit. And I think that the price point is pretty low. Um, You know, he came in under $30 million. And like you mentioned, he gave up three team options. So Detroit could buy out up to three years of team control. And that's just, I think, below the market for the pre MLB guys at this point, both in terms of giving up that third free agent year and just the overall guarantee. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there have been two of these deals this offseason for guys who have yet to make their major league debut. Uh, The Brewers gave out the other one to Jackson Churio, who is a more well-regarded prospect, but that deal was for eight years and an $82 million guarantee. So a guarantee twice as large. Um, He's expected to be, I think, an above-average defensive center fielder. So that gives him a much higher ceiling than Keith. It's fair to say if he if Keith is going to be limited to like, I don't know, like best case scenarios is like he's like a Gleyber Torres type guy who's like a good hitting second baseman, something like that. 
So that's reflected in the price point. But you're right that it's like, you know, they, they've committed in baseball terms, $30 million over six years. That's not a huge amount of money. Yeah, I mean, it's his salary will never be above $5 million. Um, so like, even if he completely flames out, that's not a rounding error or anything, but that's that's very little. That's like middle reliever money. And the, tig- um, the Tigers have almost nothing on the books, right? Like, because they've been... Right, ready. yeah. So that's the other thing, too, is I do like that they, they've... That front-loaded it is not necessarily true, but they kind of balance it out. Like, it's he gets four and a half million this year, and then three and a half, and then like four to five the rest of the way. And on a lot of these pre- or early career extensions, you see teams kind of backload it and stagger it so that it mirrors what the player would have done had they gone through arbitration, like their salaries kind of escalate as they get deeper into their late 20s. And I've never really understood why they do that, because if you're a team like Detroit that isn't fully, you know, they, they've spent a little bit this this winter more than they had in the last couple of years, but the payroll is in a manageable spot in the short term. They don't have a ton committed right now. And so if you can afford to kind of take on an extra four or five million dollars this year, why not do that so that when the time comes, you know, two, three years from now, when you're in theory, clearly in like win now mode and guys like Scooble and Torkelson will be into arbitration, deep in arbitration years and things like that. And you're sort of projecting your payroll to rise at that point. Why not offer a player like Keith more upfront money now to ensure that the salary kind of stays flat as you get later into the decade? Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, he fits well, like you know, like I said. Uh, other than uh, Baez, they don't really have anything on their future books. Uh, so, like you know, having four or five million to Keith uh, for the next few years, even if he doesn't live up to expectations, that's not going to impact their ability to do anything in the future. Uh, so interesting for them. Uh, so, how do you think? Uh, just in terms of roster construction, do you think that this means he's going to be on the opening day roster? Does this? Uh, how does this affect uh, guys like Zach McKinstry and uh, you know their other prospects like uh, Malloy and um, you know the overall organizational plan? Yeah, I mean, I would be surprised if he's not the opening day second baseman because there's no like service time. Uh, considerations at this point in theory that the only service time benefit would actually skew more towards them putting him on the roster because they could still recoup the draft pick um if he wins rookie of the year or is immediately like an mvp candidate and he had 287 369 521 in 67 triple a games last year he had an above average walk rate a lower than average strikeout rate like i don't think that he has anything left to prove against minor league pitching so obviously you never know how a guy's going to translate against major league arms until he gets there but i don't see any particular reason why you would send this guy back to triple a at this point okay all right well exciting for the tigers uh we'll see i mean the we talked about how the national league central is uh sort of a toss-up i i you know the american league central the tigers i don't think it's a crazy thing to consider them right there with the twins uh right now would you agree with that yeah, that, that'll be an interesting one. They're right along. Those two, I mean, are kind of right alongside. I could see them going either way. Um, I do think that they're clearly the two best teams in the Central at this point. They've they pulled above the Guardians for me. And, you know, the Royals have gotten better this offseason, but they're still clearly behind, I think, all three of those teams. Okay, well, let's uh, move on to some questions. Uh, we 
got a whole bunch of questions about Cody Bellinger, who is still out there. Like I said, we're two weeks from spring training, uh, a guy who should be looking at a massive deal. Um, Daniel wants to know if the asking price is why he's still unsigned. Uh, Jeremy, uh, well, Dustin, first of all, asks if the Cubs are going to re-sign him. Jeremy is asking if the outfield prospects, uh, Pete Crow Armstrong and uh, Alexander Canario and Owen Casey are preventing them from signing Bellinger. Uh, Where does Bellinger fit right now, Anthony? Yeah, it's harder and harder to see, right? I mean... (laughs) I still think that the Angels should do this. Um, no, I don't know that they will. Paramanazian said yesterday that they have no plans to move Trout off center field. He's going to be their center fielder. They signed Aaron Hicks um, to mix into the outfield. You know, I still think that they could make room for Bellinger in the corner outfield and at first base, but I don't necessarily expect them to do that. It does increasingly seem like the Cubs are probably, uh, you know, maybe the favorite is is overstating it, but the likeliest team out of any individual club. I do think that like having Pico Armstrong, um, like Jeremy mentioned, is a reason why they would have been reluctant to do like an eight year deal or something like that. Now, if we get to a point where Bellinger's market never materializes, he never gets the 200 plus that he expected and he pivots to like the short term with an opt out like Correa style deal, then I, I think the Cubs should be all in on that. Right. The Cubs, sure, yeah, because, I mean, Pete Crow Armstrong still is kind of unproven, and there's no, like, one year you can make it work. Um, but I also think that there's lots of teams who could get in at that uh, price point. I mean, if if he's doing the opt-out thing, then, you know, why not uh, the Blue Jays bump Kevin Kiermeyer into a fourth outfield thing? Or, you know, like you said, the Angels. <sighs> Jeez, even, like, the Giants? I'm just thinking now with Jung-Hoo Lee, could you fit Bellinger in there? uh maybe <laughs> um yeah yeah you probably could yeah uh so you know uh but you still think he he's getting the long-term deal in it sounds like it's getting harder to see because there are teams like there are teams that made sense for bellinger that have done other things like i think going into the offseason the yankees and the giants were our, our two favorite picks i think and then the giants added jung-hoo lee and then the yankees got Soto and Grisham and uh, Verdugo for their outfield. Um, the Jays were a sensible fit, but then they just re-signed Kiermaier. You know, the Angels were a sensible fit. They added Hicks. Like, not, these things aren't necessarily, you know, shutting the door on Bellinger, but it just makes it harder to see them being like, oh, we need to go get this guy on a 10-year deal because he's the answer to all of our problems. So, yeah. So, I don't know. Do you see it? Uh Increasingly, I think that we might be looking at the the opt out deal at this Some, point. Something like, something that, creative, right? Like, yeah, like it's just it's really hard to see what team at this point is is going to do two hundred plus. Boris is always comfortable waiting into the off season. Sometimes it works. We talked about this last week, um, but a lot of times that deal just never materializes for those guys, and then they they pivot to you know he's not going to take a straight one year deal or anything like that, but. They pivot to the kind of modified pillow contract where it's you guarantee three or four with an opt out after one. And he gets a chance to kind of prove that he's fully past the shoulder injury and that the bat of ball metrics aren't that big a deal and tries to take a swing at it again next offseason. season. 
Well, along similar lines, we have a question from Q, presumably the same Q that uh, broke all that amazing news about politics back in the day. Um, Q wants to know if the Mariners will sign Snell. Uh, should they? Will they? Can they with their uh, financial uh, situation? Um, so that's another Boris guy who's lingering on the market as spring training is approaching. Uh, he is a Seattle guy. Uh, I don't know if he was born there, but he grew up there or something. He has some uh, Pacific Northwest connections. I forget the ex- uh, specifics. Um, is he going home? Can he? What do you think? I really don't see it. I mean, it would take Seattle pushing the payroll well beyond what it seems like they want to do. Now, I know Bob Nightingale reported over the weekend that they were talking with the White Sox about Dylan Cease. So clearly they're not categorically ruling out any sort of rotation upgrade, but they don't need starting pitching. Um, so Snow will just be a luxury buy. And I understand the the geographical ties there and, you know, that I'm sure helps. It does seem like he is at least leaning towards staying in the West Coast or something like that. But it's just, I mean, they already have a, a really good rotation with Gilbert, Castillo, Kirby, Miller, and Wu. The payroll is kind of right where it is at last year's level. And unlike Bellinger, where it's, I could sort of see the argument that, okay, maybe the market just isn't there for this guy and he should take the short-term deal with the opt-out and like the high AAV. I don't, I don't see why Snell would do that. I mean, he's coming off a season that he's very unlikely to ever pitch better than he did last year. And so like, to me, this is just absolutely max out your guarantee this year. I, you know, I thought seven years made sense, but he should at least get like five or six to me. So, and I just, I don't see Seattle doing that. Uh, so does that mean, I mean, with Miller and Wu, they have uh, options and each has less than a year of service time. Do you, like, I think uh, with the cease talks, it was sort of like, well, you know, I mean, no guarantees that both of them are going to click this year. Are you feeling bullish on that back end of the rotation? I mean, yeah, I really like the pitchers themselves. Now, obviously, you're going to need more than five starters because guys get hurt. So, sure. I mean, you could you could make Snell work, right? I mean, it's if you start one of Wu or Miller in AAA, then that guy will probably be up by, like, the end of April because somebody else got hurt. Um but I just it doesn't feel like like to me, if Seattle is going to make a if they have that kind of payroll space in reserve, like I would almost rather see them go after Bellinger, which I, I don't think they're going to do either. But like at that point, if you're going to spend that kind of money, then I think that the offense is still the bigger concern there. And just more to the point, I don't I don't know that ownership is signing off on any kind of investment like that. Well, there you go. In the last question, we were trying to find a fit for Bellinger, and I think we just found one. So thank you, Anthony. <laughs> Bellinger, Bellinger to the Mariners confirmed. Okay. Well, that's all the time we have uh, for this week. Uh, thank you for uh, hanging out with me, Anthony. Yeah, of course. Anytime. So like I've said many times, it's two weeks until pitchers and catchers report for spring training. And yet big free agents are still out there. Dylan Cease is still on the White Sox. Is a big trade going to happen? We will see. Still lots of stuff going on. There are uh, multiple deals happening every day. Um, so check out MLBTradeRumors.com for all of that. And if you sign up for the front office package, you get rid of the ads and it's cheap and you get extra posts in your email and you can use the contract tracker, which is an awesome tool uh, So do all of that. And you just, you know, support us and keep us uh, in business doing stuff. Uh, so do all of that and uh, we will be back with another episode next week when it will be just one week until spring trade. 
Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. Remember to visit MLBTradeRumors.com and follow us on Twitter at MLBTradeRumors.com. 